0: Good morning, church. Wonderful to be here with you this morning. Can you believe it's August? It's August, and uh, we're going to start a new thing today. Looking forward to it. Uh, We're going to do it each month. We're going to go through the month together. We're going to begin hide the word of God in our heart together as a congregation. And so, one of the things you may have noticed this week is a little. If you have that. Go ahead and grab it. Maybe somebody next to you has it. We are going to be memorizing as a congregation Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 uh, this month. And what we're going to do at the end of the month is we are going to say it together without looking at it. Myself included. Okay. So, But for this first week, we can cheat a little bit and use our bookmark. And so we're going to say it together as a congregation this morning. Starting with the word trust. I'm going to do it like I do at release time. I'm going to count the three. And on three, we'll start saying the verse. And we always end with where we find the verse. So we'll end with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Okay, Here we go. One, two, three. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him and he will make straight your paths, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Very good. Keep that nearby throughout the month. Keep working on it. We'll review it each week, and on the last Sunday of the month, we'll hide it, and we'll say it without looking. All right, that's the goal. That is the goal. Now, I did hear some King James versions out there, and and that's okay. That's all right. We're We're not going to be pharisaical about it. We'll accept the King James Version. That's okay. (laughs) We've been studying the book of John in light of the reason for which it is written. And of course, John is clear at the end of his book, John chapter 20, as to why he wrote. And in this particular section, we have been answering the question, who is Jesus? And today we're going to be in John chapter 8, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there a while, it's John chapter 8, verses 31 and 38, and boy, there's a resounding answer to this question in our text today. It's a beautifully resounding answer. Before we begin, though, I want to reflect on an activity that I participated in a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to join together with some families Uh, ...at a local friend of ours home... ...and one of the things that we participated in... ...was a fine night game of Kick the Cone. Some of you may remember Kick the Can or Capture the Flag. Some of you may remember it's a game similar to Capture the Flag. Now, when I was young and I was growing up and playing Capture the Flag... ...one of the realities of that that I remember... ...is one of the least fun parts of the game Capture the Flag is when you're tug, right? Because when, when you're tug, in the game we were playing, when you're tug, you have to stand right where you've been tug, and you have to wait. Everyone else is running around you free, having a good time, having fun, going back and forth, trying to get the, the kick the can or trying to get the flag, but you are stationary. Sometimes seated, sometimes standing, and, and boy, it's hard. It's hard to wait. No one likes to be captured or enslaved by anything or Young, having a lot of energy, being stuck standing stationary is very, very difficult. But as you get older, there's a second reality that's very, very difficult. While you're running, you're, you're really praying that you don't pull anything. And I gotta tell you, the uh, that real fear it's a real fear that follows you when you play when you're older that you don't pull something or you don't fall over uh or actually when you're older maybe it's okay to be tugged you know (laughs) it's all right now as a kid you don't like it but when you're older you know you don't mind it so much it's nice to be able to stand still for a little bit in the middle of the game but generally we do not like being captured or being held captive by anything or anyone. And there are some realities in this world today that enslave us, that snare us, and that hold us captive. And we want to explore those together this morning. We're going to look at those in our text in John chapter 8 and see who the one is who's able to set us free from those things. Let's pray. Father, We gather this morning together surrounding your word as a congregation, as a corporate activity where we are now going to take time to reflect on the absolute truth of your living word, Lord. The scriptures which are active, which are able to convict us, which are able to change our hearts and change our minds. And so we pray, Lord, as we gather this morning, that you would indeed be working In that very way, Lord, we're exploring this morning this reality of those things in this world that ensnare us and enslave us, and we have to reflect no further than the activities of yesterday in Texas, very difficult, Lord, darkness is real, darkness has power in this world. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Texas. We pray for our fellow countrymen and women who have experienced this tragedy. Lord, that they might know hope in these days, that they may experience comfort in these moments. And Lord, that somehow you may turn what man has intended for evil to good. Lord, we'll trust you. We'll put our faith in you. We'll hope in you, and we'll pray for our friends and our family in El Paso. Lord, be with us as we explore your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 31 and 38 of John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do What you have heard from your Father. As we concluded last week, we ended in verse 30, uh, where we read in the verse that many came to believe. And as we open this portion of the text, we're left to answer the question of the veracity or the authenticity or the nature of this belief. And friends were reminded that not all belief is genuine belief. Not all belief is genuine belief. In fact, we know from the book of James that even the demons' belief was the belief that was experienced in John chapter eight, verse thirty. Genuine saving faith. For some, maybe. For others, no. And if the answer to the question of what must we do to be doing the works of God... ...if the answer to that question is to believe, which we found in John chapter 6... ...follow that John wrote his gospel so that we might believe... ...then what Jesus is defining here in this portion of John chapter 8... ...is what genuine belief looks like. How do we know as we sit here today as a body of Christ... As fellow believers, how do we know that we have truly believed? Isn't that the question that we all want alleviated in our minds? Have we truly believed in on Jesus? And if we have, how do we know? Jesus will set about Answering that very question in this portion of John 8. And his answer begins at the end of verse 31. Take a look at the end of verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Friends, those who have believed on Jesus, who are truly his disciples, there's a characteristic of their life. They abide in his word the function of genuine belief is abiding in the word that is the function of genuine faith and friends it's important for us to recognize that because there are many other places that we can go today you know we we have words of man we have popular opinion we have books oh there's tons of books out there we have all kinds of different things that we see on TV. But the safest place for us to come from, and we've said this before, the safest place to ground our discussion in and to have our conversations surrounding is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And, and church, this is a sad indictment, but I fear it might be true. I fear that in many churches across America today, we have become bored with the Word of God it's sad but but I believe that we can see it because I believe that in pulpits across America today there's less and less time spent in the word in the word and it's sad. but friends the primary reason the, the primary reason we gather on a Sunday morning is to edify to strengthen to encourage to build one another up and we do that through The word of God. These actions are actions of love. And they're actions of worship. Think of Paul's letter to the young pastor Timothy. And to the church that he was leading. There's a command that he gives Timothy. It's a command that comes with an exclamation point. It's resounding in the letter. And his command was this. Preach the word. Preach the word. Many are the thoughts and opinions of this culture and the world that we live in. And so ever-changing, friends, church, are these thoughts and opinions. And, and, And to be honest, friends, this is one of the reasons that we don't do topical, that I don't do topical preaching very often. Maybe seasonally, but not very often. This is why we go through books of the Bible. This is why we don't go after culturally relevant topics and opinions. Because they are always changing it's like trying to chase the end of a rainbow you'll never find it you never get to it and they look pretty and they look attractive because it's what's on everybody's minds and what's on everybody's mouths at that moment but friends the truest truth the absolute truth where we need to be where we need to come from week in week out day in day out the word of god In one week, the opinions of our culture may look drastically different than in another week. They're always changing. And one of the realities that we can take comfort in as a church is that though the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of the Lord endures forever and is forever unchanged. Now to the Jews who had gathered to listen to Jesus here in John chapter 8, they did not yet have the gift of the Bible as we have it today. In this context, the Jews, they had the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament, and they had the living word, Jesus, standing right in their midst. And Jesus had already on two occasions previously taught this very reality. Look at John chapter 5 verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. There's that idea of abiding in the word and belief. Being connected with one another. John chapter 6 verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him. And you know it's interesting. You can take this verse in Verse 31b, and you can flip that verse around and you can say, if you are truly my disciples, you will abide in my word. One evidence, church, of the genuine nature of our belief is our desire to be in the word of God. Now, I think we have to be careful here because I... I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. Believe me, that is the furthest thing that I want to do. I don't want to do it to myself. I'm not trying to create new a new law here. This isn't something like a checkbox or something that you have to get up every morning and check and say, Yep, I did that. That's not what this command is like. Do you remember where Paul tells the church to pray without ceasing? You remember that? And we often ask ourselves the question, what does that look like? And It's the pattern and habit of our lives. It's it's knowing the constant recognition that we are in a relationship with the sovereign, all-powerful God and being thankful for that on a consistent basis. This command, abide in my word, is similar. It's without ceasing. We are to be abiding in the word of God. That means, friends, that the character of our conversations the words that come out of our mouths, the discussions that we have on a daily basis with people, they should be seasoned with the truth of God's word. That's how they should be seasoned. Friends, questions like our conversations can go something like this. What has Jesus been teaching you through his word? You know, the first time somebody came up and asked me that question, I was like, oh, oh. You don't typically have that on your mind all the time, ready to present. But I have a brother in my life that every time I see him, that's one of the first questions he asks me. And so you know what it does for me as a brother in Christ, and maybe it would do the same thing for you, is you're always reflecting in your mind, what is Jesus teaching me right now? So when somebody does ask a question like that, what's Jesus been teaching you through his word recently? The answers are quick because you're continually reflecting on the truth of his word in your life. It's the character of your conversations. And the way that you talk with each other. The way that we talk with one another. Further insight here in verse 32. There's two rewards that come for abiding in his word. Two rewards. Look down at verse 32. We'll look at the first reward. Those who are true disciples who abide in his word, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Two rewards. Both of these rewards, by the way, are massive evidences of God's grace towards us. The first reward, you will know the truth. And friends, it's so important. I've heard this passage preached before, and when I've heard this passage preached before, I've heard sometimes pastors spend a lot of time on the different kinds of truth, absolute truth, subjective truth, objective truth. That's not what Jesus is trying to do here. What has Jesus been trying to do through the entire first eight chapters of this book? What's he been doing over and over and over again to the people? He's been revealing himself to them. And so when he says, you will know the truth if you abide in my word, he's saying, you will know me. You will know my identity. You will know the truth. He's revealing himself to them. The truth here is knowing that Jesus is the Messiah. For those who have gathered, the Jews who had believed, this is the knowledge of God realized in the coming of Christ and for us today gathered together in our churches and communities friends it is the same thing the best truth that we could ever possibly know is that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God sent from God to save the world from sin and death it's the best truth that we could ever know and we don't come by this truth on our own knowledge church This isn't something that we somehow attain to by our own strength. Paul says in the book of Romans that faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of God. If you have believed in Jesus and you're abiding in his word, truly his disciples, then we should be thankful that God has used his word in some miraculous way to reveal this truth to us. Friends, don't settle for anything less than this truth the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came to this earth, that He died the death that we deserved after living a sinless life, that He rose from the dead and He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Do not settle for any truth less than that. Church, this is why we unite and this is why we do things like, some people have said, why do we say things like the Apostles' Creed? Why do we say things like this or why do we unite and say we unite around the creeds of the church? Because what they do is in community, we're affirming the basic truths of our faith together. And it's a wonderful practice, friends. Here it is one more time as unpacked in John chapter one. Look at this. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You shall know the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The first reward, friends, the first reward for true disciples who abide in the Word is that we know Jesus. We know Jesus. And the second reward, friends, for abiding in God's Word is that the truth, Jesus, sets us free. And and that reward necessarily leads us to ask a question that might be difficult for some of us. What has enslaved us? Good question, right? Yeah. What has enslaved us? And there's a few answers. Sin is certainly one. Death is another. Death enslaves us because apart from Jesus we will all die. Death is the consequence of sin. Sin enslaves us because we're all sinners and we fall captive to its attraction. Or we miss its disguise hidden within the things that we most use to justify our actions, attitudes, and behaviors. Friends, there's another thing that encaptures us and enslaves us. And I think this is especially true for the church and for believers today. We have sin. We have death. But friends, many find ourselves enslaved by the law. If sin is a slave master, then the law is our terrible abuser. Think about this. But we justify our behaviors, our attitudes, and our actions. And when we're living by it and abiding by it, it's patting us on the back saying, look at all the good things that you're doing. Giving us hugs. Making us feel good. But stray from a, for a moment. Fail. Fall. Stumble. Trip up. Lose your grip. And its condemnation is powerful and harming. Friends, we are not justified by observing the law, yet every time seems like it's what we want to go for. I I think of the law, if any of you have ever read the series, it was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, and it was a a series of books called The Lord of the Rings. In that series of books, there's this ring that this this creature gets a hold of. His name's Gollum. And this ring refers to this ring as... His precious, my precious, he says, over and over and over again. And friends, sometimes I think that's the law to us. It's pretty. We can touch it. We can taste it. We can hold it. We can check all of the boxes off and do all of the right things. And we can pattern our lives by it, wrongly believing that somehow we're justified through it the reality is this, friends. The law has no more ability to clean us up and make us righteous than a puddle of mud. Yet we love to wallow in the law. We love it. And friends, I'm including myself here because in my own weakness, I often find myself enslaved by it. It's much easier for me to set my schedule up in a way that I can check off all the boxes and at the end of the day feel pretty good about what I did. But is that right? Is that loving? I don't know. Judging others by the actions I see on the outside, not really digging below the surface to discover the orientations and motivations of the heart. Interesting story this week. When I was in high school, there was a a popular book that was published, uh, one that almost all of my friends, all of my Christian friends, flocked to and grabbed hold of um, and, and some of them, actually, I remember, forced me to read it. The title of the book was, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Anybody around my age remember the title of that book? Remember that book? And it was like, you had, if you were a teenager, I was a teenager at the time, if you did not read that book, you probably weren't a Christian. I mean, that was kind of the way it was couched to me. And, and if you read it and didn't agree with it, you definitely weren't a Christian. I mean, and I remember I had a group of friends that went all in. Captured, hook, line, and sinker by this book. And I remember there were some things in it I just kind of pushed back on. And and boy, did I get chastised. I got chastised. You know, the author of that book this week, his name was Joshua Harris. He renounced the faith. Turned away from... Christianity in a very somber and sobering post on his Instagram account. And in the end, I wonder if the law that he created was too much for him to stand up under. You see, friends, it's not just that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I have to be honest with you, on my bookshelf back in my office, there's probably over 20 or 30 books that are new laws written by man today that stand pointing their fingers at me, condemning me when I'm not living up to their standards. And we have to be careful, church. We have to be careful. Because the law is not our standard for righteousness. It's not our standard. Perhaps our motives are good in going after the law. Maybe we believe that by following it, we will find freedom from sin's bondage, but it's a, false, it's a lie, friends. As we gather to edify and build ourselves up today, let's remind ourselves of this. Following rules does not free us from the bondage of sin. Jesus frees us from the bondage of sin. Amen? Amen. And Jesus sets us free from the curse of the law. Church, we must live in this freedom. It's not an option. It's an imperative. It's a reward. It's evidence that we are truly in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus' law, defined by love, is the law that sets us free to live, church. Jesus' law, defined by love, is the law that sets us free to live. And being thankful that Jesus has us from our two greatest problems of sin and death is a wonderful place to start church we must not allow something to enslave us that jesus has set us free from and those who are gathered here listening to jesus they're shocked by this statement absolutely shocked look at verse 33 they're offended that jesus say that they were enslaved to anything look at what they say in verse thirty-three. We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say you will become free? There's further evidence here, friends, that that which enslaves us, we are often most blind to. This would almost be as if someone asked you, how do you know that you are truly saved? And and we would respond to them by saying, because our parents are. They always brought us to church. So we must be too. In the context here, there's greater concern given to their physical position than to their spiritual condition. Dangerous place to be, friends. It's it's not that their reflection on being the offspring of Abraham isn't accurate, it's more that it's inadequate. It's inadequate. Their physical position as Abraham's offspring spoke nothing about their spiritual condition as slaves to sin and death and all that followed. Their comment, we have never been enslaved to anyone, ignored both clear historical realities and clear present realities, right? We don't have to look any further historically than Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Persians, all of them enslaved the people of Israel. And now, culturally, presently, as Jesus is speaking to them, they're slaves to the Roman Empire. They're slaves to their religious leaders. And they're slaves to the law. If any one country or people group throughout all of history should have been experts in the realm of slavery and bondage at this particular time, it should have been the Jews. You know, it was the Jews who were often led astray by the law that they believed that through their study of, would set them free. And besides, circumcision of the flesh is much easier to identify, to rectify, and to justify than what Paul described as a circumcision of the heart. That which we can see, which we can touch, which we can taste, and we can feel is often more attractive to us than that which is unseen. They are challenging Jesus here, as was often the case. And they're misrepresenting His words. They say, quote, you will become free. Jesus never said these words. Jesus' words will, were what? The truth will set you free. You will become free is, very, is a very different statement than will set you free. Very different statements. And now Jesus is going to move on to show them the true identity of the one who could set them free indeed. Look down at verses 34 to 38. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. It is really interesting to see here how verse 34 directs us back to the beginning of John chapter 8, and this is a long chapter. Do you remember when the chapter started? This chapter started with the woman who was caught in adultery, right? And and Jesus' verdict at the end of that scene in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, his verdict is let him without sin cast the first stone. Because the Jews would never admit they were without sin, because without sin there would have been no need for the law. So Jesus is going to direct their attention towards our slave master of sin, reminding them that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But friends, there's a way out of slavery, and the path to freedom begins with the work of the Son. The path to freedom begins with the work of the Son. Our sonship and our adoption into the family of God is grounded in his position as the true son of God. Look at the line in verse 35 The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. The idea here is that the slave has no permanent place in the family. He or she is not entitled to the rights and privileges of true family members, the slave is not fully free to enjoy the benefits. Of the family look back in in Genesis chapter 20 and 21 the story of Abraham Abraham because him and Sarah couldn't bear a child together Sarah told him to take one of their maidservants Hagar do you remember this from Genesis and so Abraham takes Hagar and he has relations with her and together they have a son and what was the name of the son Ishmael and everything was okay now remember, Hagar was a slave. Her son, Sil, yes, child of Abraham, but considered a slave. And all was well and all was good until what? Until Sarah became pregnant. And her and Abraham together had a son. And then everything changed, did it not? You remember what Sarah said about Hagar and Ishmael? What did she say to Abraham? Do you remember what she said? Cast them out. See, the slave has no permanent residence. But the son, he has residence forever. Isaac, the true son of Abraham and Sarah, would remain in the house forever as the true father and patriarch, one of the true fathers and patriarch of the nation of Israel. Church, The question today is are we sons and daughters or are we slaves? And the glorious answer to that question is that if you have a personal relationship with Jesus today as you sit here, that you have been adopted into the family of God as a son or a daughter. You are no longer a slave, but a child of God. Look at verse 36. So if the Son sets you free... You will be free indeed. There's a few observations. First, we don't free ourselves. You notice that? If the Son sets you free, we don't have the power, church, to free ourselves from the vices of sin. Jesus must do that for us. The law can't do it. Abraham can't do it. The Son sets us free, and when He does that, we are unquestionably, undoubtedly, undeniably free. Free indeed. So perhaps there's some questions that we might wrestle with as we sit here today. I still sin. Does that mean that I have not been set free? It's a fair question. And we know this, church, those who are in Christ Jesus have died to sin. The Bible tells us that. This means that sin no longer has dominion or rule over those who are in Christ. Romans is a key book holding the answers to these important questions, especially Romans chapter 1 through 11. If you want to be blessed, anytime you want to be blessed, anytime you really want to rejoice in truth, and you want to be blessed by a portion of Scripture, sit down and read Romans chapter 1 through 11. What a beautiful portion of Scripture. Just as through or through Adam's sin, sin was imputed or laid on to each one of us, so that we are born sinners. So too, through Jesus' victory over sin and death, is Jesus' righteousness laid on every believer, so that we are no longer slaves to sin but now slaves to righteousness. Just because we sin doesn't mean that we haven't been set free from the bondage of sin and death. Sin no longer reigns in our lives. Now what reigns in the life of the believer is the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' death sets us free from both the penalty of sin and the dominion of sin. We often don't think about both. We often think of one or the other. We often think about the penalty of sin. Jesus' death setting us free from the penalty of sin. But it accomplishes two different things. It's not just the penalty of sin that his death sets us free from, but his death also sets us free from the dominion of sin. Sin no longer has ownership of us or rule over us. So the second question that follows, if I have been set free, why do I still struggle With sin? Fair question. Good question. In his book, The Discipline of Grace, author Jerry Bridges does a fabulous job of shedding light on the answer to this question. Listen to this quote. He says this, quote, "...we must distinguish between the activity of sin, which is true in all believers, and the dominion of sin, which is true of all unbelievers." Sin is not primarily an activity of man's will so much as a captivity which man suffers as an alien power grips his soul. It is an axiom for Owen that while the presence of sin can never be abolished in this life, nor the influence of sin altered... ...its tendency is always the same, its dominion can and indeed must be destroyed if a man is to be a Christian. Now he continues, listen. Therefore, a believer cannot continue in sin. We no longer live in the realm of sin under its reign and practical uh, dominion. We have, to use Paul's words, died to sin. We indeed do sin. All of us in here. And even our best deeds are stained with sin. But our attitude towards it is essentially different from that of an unbeliever. We succumb to temptations, either from our own desires in James chapter 1, or from the world, or from the devil, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But this is different from a settled disposition. Further, for the Christian, our sin is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. End quote. I'll say that again. This is again quoted just that last line, quoted from uh, Jerry Bridges. Our sin is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. End quote. Friends, we, we struggle with sin because it is impressed upon and stitched into the very fabric of this temporary world that we live in. We cannot live in mud and expect not to get a bit dirty. Indeed, we're born dirty, according to the Scriptures. The difference is this. The difference is that as believers, we no longer find delight or satisfaction in our sins. Rather, they are as afflictions to us. They burden us. The Spirit's work in our lives convicts us and drives us towards repentance and a desire for forgiveness and a right relationship with God. Isn't it amazing? The, the sons of Abraham here in this text, in, in back in John chapter 8, the sons of Abraham, the descendants of the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis, what are they doing? They're seeking to kill the promised son. They're seeking to kill me. Why? Look down at verse 37. Why are they seeking to kill him? Sin obviously has dominion over them. Obviously this belief at the beginning of the chapter was not genuine for many. Maybe for some it was. But they're seeking to kill him because my words find no place in you. This group believed him. But they were not yet his disciples. Disciples abide in the word. Jesus' word had found no place on them. His words had fallen on deaf ears. Finally, Jesus will confirm once again that he only speaks what he has seen with his father. Look down at verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Take note of the verbs that Jesus is using here. It's interesting. Jesus speaks what he sees. Jesus speaks what he sees. The Jews do what they have heard. Now, I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate that. And the only way I could is imagine, and some of us have done this before, if, if you were to blindfold me up here. all right? I'm blindfolded, and I'm standing over here, and you blindfold me. And now I'm going to do, you're going to get me to the plants over here. I'm blindfolded. And all I'm going to do is what I hear you say. Everybody go ahead and tell me how to get to the plants. Tell me. Okay. Good. So, hey, I'm blindfolded. I'm only doing what I hear. And listen to how many voices are out there. Boy, that's really hard. But friends, that's how we live when we live in bondage to sin. I mean, think about that. That is our life apart from Christ. Many are the voices in this world. Many are the opinions of man. And we are blind to the truth when we're living apart from Jesus. But Jesus was different. And friends, Jesus gives us the ability to be different. Isn't it amazing? Jesus speaks what he sees. So well, I can stand over here and I can tell you, I know the way to that plant. I can see it and I know how to get there and I'm going to walk straight to it. And boy, it's a lot more clear, isn't it? And that's how he uses his word. ...in our lives. That's why it says... ...Thy word is a lamp unto my feet... ...and a light unto my path. Jesus gives us the ability... ...to live with great light. To see and to live... ...in this truth... ...and in this manner. There's another observation here... ...if you look at the word Father. Jesus' words and his behaviors... and friends, ...when we are living in the light... ...and living in the truth... Our words and our behaviors should be motivated by the Father, capital F. Underline that, capital F, very important, because the actions and the behaviors of the Jews were motivated by their father, who we're going to find out next week, Jesus is accusing them of their father being who? The devil. Lowercase f. So the question is, As we wind down, how might our lives look in light of of these realities? And and to be honest, friends, we're answering the question, who is Jesus? And boy, is that answer resounding in this text or not. Who is Jesus? He is the truth, the one who sets us free. That is the power of Jesus. That is who he is. He's the one that can set us free. And our team's going to come up. And we're going to close in a song this morning, and as they come up, I want to ask this question: What is it that perhaps has enslaved you today? You know, the reality is, Jesus has set you free. He set us free from sin. He set us free from death. Friends, He set us free from the curse of the law. Is there hopelessness in your life? Jesus has set you free from it. Are you holding on to guilt or shame? Jesus has set you free from it. Is there depression? Is there anxiety? Is there any fear that you're holding on to? Jesus has set you free. He's light. He's life. What lies out there have you believed? What kind of oppressive relationships are in your life that are causing you to think differently than this truth that Jesus has set you free? Friends, don't get sucked up into the comparison live in today. Grab hold of the reality of the truth that in Christ, you are free. He has set you free. And those who he has set free are free.